0: In early 2015, 21 men were kidnapped in Libya by the Islamic State. The abducted men were almost all from the same rural village in Egypt. They were construction workers far away from home. These men were tortured and abused for a month. And on a daily basis, they were given opportunities to deny Christ, told they would be let go. But they refused to do so. They were told they would be beheaded if they continued to confess Christ. They persevered. Back home in Egypt in their village, their wives and mothers all went to the same Christian church in Egypt. And they weren't praying for them to be released. They knew that probably would not happen. They were praying that their husbands would persevere to the end and be courageous in the face of martyrdom. The press didn't know what to do with this. When they went to the little village and they interviewed the wives of these men and the mothers of these men, and they said, I'm praying for my husband to have courage. These men refused to give in to to fear, fear of humiliation, fear of pain, fear of death. And on February 15th, these 21 Christian men were marched out onto the beach of Sirte, Libya, cameras rolling by ISIS camera crews. And as the Muslim executioners blindfolded them and walked up behind them, the first man was told, you have one last opportunity to deny Christ. And he shouted out with a full voice, Jesus is Lord. Within five seconds, his head was sliced off. The second man, same opportunity. He shouted out louder, Jesus is Lord, and was beheaded. It happened 21 times. ISIS used this as a propaganda video, but back home in Egypt, their wives and their mothers were rejoicing that their husbands, their sons were unyielding in their allegiance to Jesus to the very end. That is strength and courage. Tonight, we're going to be looking at this concept of biblical courage. When I think about what the scriptures teach about courage, I immediately think of two men and so should you in scriptures. The first is Daniel. Now, what I want to point out is we look at Daniel and David for just a moment. These men we usually think of as, as models of courage. They had a hero. Their hero was Joshua. Daniel, you remember after being told to stop praying by government order, opened his balcony window like every day, and according to Daniel 6, he prayed. He knew this could cost him his life and his position. But he didn't hesitate to obey God's command and was promptly thrown in the lion's den for his unwavering obedience to the commands of God. The Lord preserved Daniel in the lion's den, much to the amazement of his pagan captors. His trait of courage had been developed much earlier, decades earlier, when as a teenage boy of 14, Daniel had been carted off hundreds of miles east of Jerusalem across the Syrian desert to Babylon. And not only was he taken to a place where the weather is different, the geography is different, the language is different, the history is different, the national religion was pagan and different, the laws were different, and the food was different. When Daniel, as a teenage boy, was given food that violated biblical ceremonial laws, he courageously resisted and offered a better solution. He lived around 600 B.C. Then there was David. Again, when we think of courage, we think of these two men, David and Daniel. David, of course, is a teenager. Now, moms and dads, you need to look at yourself and then look down the row at your teenager and say, are they prepared to stand courageously? Have we trained them in such a way, biblically, have we prayed for them in such a way that they have begun to take on this character trait? David, as a young boy, teenager, also just like Daniel, takes on the giant undefeated Philistine Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. But his trait of courage had been developed much earlier by hand-to-hand contact and combat with lions and bears. We're told about in 1 Samuel 17 while protecting his sheep. David lived around 1000 BC. But both of them would have read of the courageous exploits of Joshua who lived around 1350 BC. So by the time David burst on the scene in 1000 BC and Daniel in 600 BC, Joshua was set in Israelite history as the most heroic figure in their national history. He was the role model for courage. Joshua would have demonstrated courage 40 years before our text. I hope you're looking at Joshua chapter 1. I hope that alarm doesn't mean I'm done already, but <clears throat> we just got started. Uh, Joshua would have <clears throat> demonstrated courage 40 years before our text, back in Exodus and Numbers, when he led the untrained, untested army of Israel into their first battle against Amalek. That was just a warm-up for what he'll be called to do. Tonight we're going to look at courage. I hope you're looking now at Joshua chapter 1, verses 5-9. through 9. We're going to look at the importance that scripture places upon this character trait. Specifically, we're going to look at the courage of an 80-year-old man. The man who spent the first 40 years of his life in Egyptian slavery. And the next 40 years in the wilderness as Moses' assistant. And now Joshua has been called as an 80-year-old man upon the death of Moses. He's been called to lead one of the most difficult nations ever. The Lord tells him to get up and begin the battle and tells him that he'll triumph, and then the Lord does something that's astounding. In rapid succession, the Lord issues the same imperative. Look at your text, verse 6, 7, and 9. I'm going to say quite a bit in just a moment about why the Lord repeats this imperative. Let's seek the help of the Lord now as we prepare to hear this very important text. O oh, sovereign God, help us to so hear Your holy word that we may truly understand, and that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking Your honor and glory in all we do. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Now, I want you to look carefully, first of all, at all of the promises that Joshua given in our text. If you're looking at Joshua chapter one, you'll notice some of the promises. And these promises that are given. And I want you to notice they're not as simple as they seem at first blush. For example, in verse 3, look at the promise contained there. Where the Lord tells Joshua, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I will give you. But you have to get to it first. Right now, Joshua and Israel are standing on the east side of the Jordan River. Which is, we will be told in Joshua chapter 3, a raging torrent of a river with class 5 rapids. And Joshua has to get women and children and old folks and livestock across the Jordan River. And there are no bridges, no pontoon boats, and no airlifts. And oh, by the way, Joshua, when I tell you in verse 3, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I will give you, you will have to fight every step of the way against heavily armed, entrenched Canaanites. Then there's another promise. Look at verse 5. <clears throat> the Lord tells Joshua, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. But every nation of Canaan will try to stand against you. They will use every means of warfare at their disposal. Another promise, look at it in verse 5. This, this By the way, this section is filled with promises and imperatives. In verse 5, the Lord says, as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I'll not leave you nor forsake you. But had that fact prevented Israel from complaining against Moses? No. Would it prevent Israel from constantly challenging Joshua's leadership? No. And then in verse 6, another promise. Joshua 2, this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land. By the way, that's going to be a major ordeal. We'll spend several chapters looking at this division of the land. Twelve different tribes of varying size, all with desires for the best land and the largest plot of land, the best land both for defense and agriculture. But the specific promise, look carefully at verse 6. Joshua can be heartened by this. The specific promise is the division of land will be completed and accomplished during Joshua's lifetime. But what puts steel in Joshua's backbone are these repeated promises, the ones I just showed you, and even more, the promises of victory and triumph. He doesn't take these promises as grounds for laziness and inactivity, no. He hears these promises, and they make him strong and brave. And these promises prepare him for trouble. Now, I want to stop for just a second, and parents, I want to speak to you about your children tonight. I want to ask, do you have fearful children who live in your home? can't tell you how many times I'm speaking to children of this church, elementary school, middle school, high schoolers, and they will say to me, freely confessing, that they're anxious about this. They're fearful about that. It seems as though if there's anything our generation is known for, especially the generation of our children, it is anxiety and fears out the top of our head so, parents, let me encourage you that, first of all, it is your gospel duty to model bravery before your children by standing for truth and righteousness, where else will they learn bravery if not from you, and to feed your children a steady diet of the promises of God. We're going to see tonight that one of the ways that we put courage into our own hearts and the hearts of our children is by feeding ourselves the promises of God over and over again. And so, parents, let me ask you, do your children know some of these promises? Jesus said he'll build his church and the gates of hell will not triumph over it. Do they know that? Do they know the promise that's even contained in our text that the Lord is always with them and will never leave them or forsake them? Do they know the promise that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us? Do they know that that core promise of Romans 8 that neither death nor life nor angels or principalities nor power shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? So you'll want to reach over and elbow your 10-year-old, your 12-year-old, and say, I think he's talking to you. So what I want us to do with our time is I want us to look and focus in most carefully on this issue of courage, strength and courage, because that's the repeated three times imperative that God gives Joshua. Now, I want us to think about why this repetition. There are some biblical themes that are repeated with frequency, and we quickly learn This is not because our God is rambling and repeats himself like someone with degenerative brain issues. No. The Lord repeats certain themes, imperatives, indicatives, and promises to show us their vital importance. When a truth is repeated over and over again, you should say, instead, I heard you the first time. Your response should be, this must be important because God keeps saying this. Now, I want you to think of what some of those are. If I were to stop and say, what are some of the most repeated subjects in the scripture? Well, one of the first would be the imperative of singing God's praise. The person who doesn't engage in wholehearted corporate sung praise doesn't grasp one of the most major and repeated imperatives of the Bible. On hundreds of occasions, hundreds, you and I are commanded to sing praise to our God. For example, in Psalm 47, the psalmist writes, sing praises to our God, sing praises. Sing praises with understanding. Or in Psalm 96, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Those are commands, and these commands don't go away in the New Testament. In Colossians 3, the apostle Paul says that we're to, in all wisdom, teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. All of those are commands. It may be the most repeated command in all scripture. Another repetition comes with the indicative, that oft-repeated indicative that said over and over again. Speaking of the, the covenantal relationship that exists between God and his corporate people, when you came in here tonight, you may not have looked up on your way out the door. Turn and look up above the door. We have it written there above the door. We have it written there for a good point, for a good reason. We have the covenantal indicative from Jeremiah 30. You shall be my people, and I shall be your God. Because what happens every time we gather in this place, we are gathering as the covenanted people of God. But it's repeated over and over again in Leviticus. I will walk among you, be your God, you shall be my people. In Ezekiel, you shall be my people, I will be your God. This is stated over and over again. When God is confirming and affirming his relationship with his people, one of covenant loyalty. But I say this as a setup, because if we engage in quantitative analysis of the Bible, you'll quickly notice that one of the most repeated commands, well over 300 occasions, is the command to not fear. For example, we're told in Exodus 14, do not fear, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you'll see the deliverance of the Lord. Or Deuteronomy 3, where the Lord commands Israel, do not be afraid of them, the Lord your God will fight for you. Or in Joshua 10, by the way, Joshua, the book of Joshua is crammed with admonitions to be courageous and not fear. In Joshua chapter 10, the Lord says, do not be afraid of them, I've given them into your hand. But then this this picks up speed in the New Testament where Jesus, it seems on every page of the gospel, is telling his disciples to not be afraid. For example, in Luke 12, Jesus says, do not be afraid, little flock, for the Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Now our text, look at it carefully in verse 9, tells you what to put off and put on. You know that that's the sanctification dynamic of the New Testament. We're not only to mortify sin, but we're to put on those Christian virtues. And what we are told to put off and put on, we're to put off fear. And what to put on? Strength and courage. And we need to be reminded of this all of those 300 plus times and more. We need to hear it over and over again. We need it pounded into our minds until it becomes second nature to obey it. We need to be told, if God is for us, who can be against us? This is a repeated command. Look at it. Just let your eye wander down our text. There it is in verse 6, again in verse 7, again in verse 9. And this turns out, this, this command to be strong and courageous is not just given to Joshua, but it's already been given to the whole nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 31. And it's repeated in the New Testament when Paul tells the Corinthian church to stand fast in the faith, be brave and strong. Now, up until this point, I've purposefully not define my terms but i want to do that now what is courage our country is deeply confused about this if a young man decides that he wants to identify as a girl and he goes on tiktok or facebook or whatever he goes on and says he's identifying as a girl he will immediately be flooded with people telling him you are so brave my friends he's not brave he's a fool Let me tell you what a definition is of courage. A definition of courage is, it is the willingness to say and do the right thing. The biblically obedient thing. The moral ethical stance, regardless of the earthly cost, because God is with you. An act takes courage if it likely will be painful. The pain may be physical or it may be emotional. But an act takes courage if it is done in the knowledge that it will probably bring pain and loss. Courage is a victory over fear. The courageous person knows and lives on texts like Psalm 27, where the psalmist writes, The Lord is my light and my salvation, so whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life, so of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh... My enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army camps around me, my heart shall not fear. You see, the godly mature man, he has committed texts like that to memory. He feeds his soul on those. By the way, strength and courage, right now if you're a wife and your elbow and your husband saying, are you hearing this? It's not just for men. Strength and courage are for godly women as well. Do you remember what we're told about the Proverbs 31 woman? She's described this way strength and dignity are her clothing. Same word that's used here in Joshua chapter 1. Well, what about cowardice, the inverse of courage and weakness? So Joshua, for the people, is being told to be strong and courageous. What about the opposite? What about weakness and cowardice? Well, Joshua is commanded, if you look at verse 9, he's commanded to mortify it. To mortify fear. Lack of courage, by the way, is natural to the unbeliever. Look across the page at Joshua chapter 2, verse 11. Where Rahab, who's about to be shown as one of the great models of courage for women. And by the way, she's not not even a, a, a mature believer. We're going to see her as a brand new believer, but she's courageous. And look what she says about all of her Canaanite countrymen... In Joshua 2, verse 11, she says, As soon as we heard these things, that is the victories of Israel's army, as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. The reason why, of course, they're fearful is because they're unbelievers. Unbelievers have no promises or future to lean on. They have no spiritual strength that comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit. Should we be surprised when lost people are cowards? No, a thousand times no. That's their nature. I have to remind you as well that God's wrath will be poured out on the coward. To close the book in Revelation 21, John writes that the cowardly the unbelieving, the sexually immoral, all liars, shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Carl, are you telling me that God wants me to buck up and act tough? My natural resources and temperament and personality don't work that way. No, I'm not telling you that. Because repeatedly the Lord adds this caveat onto all commands to be strong and courageous. In Ephesians 6, Paul writes, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. To be strong in the Lord means to renounce all your own strength and to cry out to God for his. Oh, Carl, but even with God strengthening me, I'm just too weak to overcome this sin, this obstacle. I'm just too cowardly to take on this issue. Put one finger here and look back at Ephesians 1, the text we looked at this morning. Ephesians 1, and I want to remind you of that one word we saw this morning. For you as a believer tonight, and you say, Carl, I just can't be strong. I'd like to be. I'd like to be strong and courageous like God commands his people to be, but I just can't be. Do you remember what Paul is praying for for the Ephesian church in Ephesians 1.18? He says, I'm praying that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand. The point is, as I said this morning, is you have access to the power that raised Jesus from the dead. To strengthen you and give you courage. To be strong in the Lord means you can say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. To be strong in the Lord means that you ask the Lord to keep the long term view, long term goal in view. This is what gave our Lord Jesus courage. We're told in Hebrews 12, he persevered for the joy that was set before him, enduring, enduring the shame of the cross. What I want to do for a few minutes is I want to give you help. I don't want to just tell you about God's command and say, there, go obey. Be strong and courageous. I want to point out 10 helps that God has given you to be strong and courageous. And I would encourage you, I rarely scold people and tell them they need to take notes, but you need to take notes here. Because what I want to do is I want to point out 10 helps that God has given, 10 means that you can use to be strong and courageous when you feel Weak and cowardly. Ten helps. The first is understand that grace is to make us strong. We're told in 2 Timothy 2 1, My son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, Don't be carried about by strong, strange doctrines. It's good that the heart be strengthened by grace. How? How does grace make us strong? Because grace reminds us that we have nothing and can do nothing by the power of the flesh. Only as God freely and sovereignly supplies, grace makes us strong in the Lord. Second help, to be strong. The forgiveness of sins is guaranteed to make you strong. Because now that our guilt is removed, we don't live in fear of retribution as cowards. We can live with boldness. Most believers don't know what effect certain doctrines are to have upon them. But let me tell you what effect the the forgiveness of sins is to have upon you. You're to gain strength from that. When you understand that your slate has been wiped clean, that you don't have to face God as as an angry judge but as a father, that is to make you strong. A third help. To be strong and courageous, the presence of God, understanding the omnipotence of or the omnipresence of God that He is here and by His Spirit is even indwelling you. Joshua is told this in Joshua one verse five and Joshua one verse nine. I will never leave you or forsake you. That should make you strong, rightly understood. You're never to have the fear of loneliness and standing alone thinking, I I can't stand against these people alone. You don't have to. You have the presence of God. You have the indwelling third person of the Holy Spirit to make you strong. A fourth help to make you strong and courageous. The knowledge that the one with you is greater than your adversary. The one who is with you is greater than any adversary. When you think about the cultural flood tide that is coming in upon us, and say, I can't stand against the flood tide. They're too strong an enemy. Now the one who is with you is stronger. You remember in Second Chronicles thirty two that beautiful picture when Israel was surrounded by the armies of the pagan king Sennacherib. And King Hezekiah went around to his men and he encouraged him by telling them Be strong and courageous. It's fascinating how often that phrase is used. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid before the king of Assyria or all the multitude that's with him, for there are more with us than him. When you do the numbers, you think, no, they're not. He's speaking about the presence of the Lord. John says it this way in 1 John 4. You're of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is on the world. The scripture teaches us to count the numbers and always recognize because God is with us, we are never outnumbered. A fifth help to make us strong and courageous, the joy of the Lord. We're told in Nehemiah chapter 8, the joy of the Lord is our strength. How do we go strong? Through cultivating joy. The cultivation of the fruit of the spirit that is joy will give courage. On the other hand, Melancholy, depression, will make you weak and doubtful and questioning. If there's anything that many folks in this room need to cultivate strength, it is the joy of the Lord. A sixth, help to make us strong and courageous. Knowing that God is sovereign over our battles should make us strong and courageous. David's general Joab in 2nd Samuel 10 says to his armies be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and may the Lord do what is good in his sight. In other words he's saying let's go into battle knowing that God is sovereign. If nothing can happen but that which God ordains, if it is our time or our time to be if it's our time to die or our time to be fired, God's decree can't be changed, so trust and obey. A seventh, help to make you strong and courageous. And now I'm getting really personal. I'm getting really practical. We grow strong and courageous by asking for these virtues. I've had this talk hundreds of times in my pastoral ministry where people say, Carl, I'm, I'm weak and I'm afraid. I'm very anxious. And my immediate question is, have you Ask the Lord for strength and courage. Well, no, should I be? Look how often in scripture, God's people are found asking the Lord for the virtue of courage or strength. In Psalm 138, the psalmist writes, In that day when I cried out to you, you answered me and made me bold with strength. Doesn't Isaiah say, in Isaiah 40, He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. So ask him for power. Paul prays this for others in Ephesians 3. He says, I bow my knees to the Father that he would grant you to be strengthened with might in the inner man. Paul asks others to pray this for him. In Ephesians 6, he says, pray for me that utterance may be given me that I might open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. And what we find is there's this, this cross pollination among the people of God. They're praying for one another, for their strength and courage, and others are praying for them. When was the last time you prayed for strength and courage? When was the last time you're praying, ascended beyond, Lord, be with us today? The reason why you have not so often is because you've asked not. An eighth help to strength and courage from hearing of the example of others when you hear god strengthened him he made a, a a previously cowardly man into a strong man a courageous man he can do the same for me when we hear of david fearlessly rushing towards goliath we are strengthened when we see the examples of the apostles in those early chapters in the book of acts we gain courage When we read missionary biographies, by the way, hardly anything outside of scripture can give you more courage than the reading of missionary biographies. When we read of men like John Payton, surrounded by cannibals, didn't fear, but he prayed, we're emboldened. Don't we have the same God? Shouldn't we be brave? A ninth, help to strengthen courage. We grow strong by trusting in Christ's triumph. We're told in John 16, at the close of the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus says to his disciples, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace in the world. You'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And what Jesus is saying is to his, his disciples, Take courage, the fix is in, and I'm going to triumph. A tenth help. We grow strong and courageous by fearing the right person. Part of our problem is, is we fear all right, but we just fear the wrong person. Remember who Jesus told us to fear? He says, don't fear those who can just kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. He's speaking of the Father. Just as words, we're not commanded to fear any man or any human problem, so we are commanded to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is that holy fear that casts out all other fears. How do we apply this text? Let me make several applications to us, four to be exact, four applications from this text. I want to vindicate God's pedagogical method. His teaching method, you see it here in our text in verse 6, 7, and 9, is repetition and reminders. And when God's apostles take up pens to put to paper and they begin to teach through scripture, they do the exact same thing. (laughs) For example, Paul says in Romans 15, 15, he says, I've written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you. Why does he repeat himself? Because God does. He says in Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it's safe. Peter does the same thing. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were written before. Paul and Peter both do this. They see the Lord's model, hundreds of repetitions, and so they do it in writing. Or Jude writes it in Jude 5. I want to remind you that though once you knew this, and then he talks about the Lord's wrath against his enemies. When I'm reminding the flock, I'm simply, whether it's me or Taylor or Scotty or Dan, we're simply cooperating with the Holy Spirit, who were told by Jesus in John 14 that the Spirit will keep reminding believers of truth they've learned. That's the pedagogical methodology of the Bible, the teaching method. God teaches us through repetition and reminders, and so do his apostles. Certain truths, of course, in the Scripture are so important, they're prefaced with the word, Remember. In the Ten Commandments, the only one of the ten words that begins with the imperative remember is the fourth commandment. To remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Why is this? Because we tend to quickly forget that one whole day in seven belongs to the Lord. And so what I'm going to tell you is I'm not doing my job if I don't frequently remind you of key truths. And one of those truths is to be courageous and not fear. The second application Right now, I know from speaking with some of you, some of you are facing very difficult issues. Medical issues, financial issues, family issues, and you're feeling weak and afraid. You have to confront that person. You have to break off that sinful relationship. You're facing a task that seems daunting. Your knees are trembling. You're losing sleep. Let me ask you, if you've taken careful notes tonight, Will you use all the means and all the helps that God has provided? Will you pray biblically, asking the Lord for the Holy Spirit-given gift of strength and courage? Will you believe the scriptures that he who is with you is greater than he who is in the world? Will you feed your mind upon biblical examples of brave and courageous souls, David and Daniel and Joshua and Jael and Rahab? And will you stir up the fear of the Lord, knowing that as you do, your fear of man will rapidly diminish? Will you use the means to put on courage and mortify fear? A third application. If we're commanded to be strong in the Lord and to be courageous, and we are hundreds of times, then weakness and lack of courage is disobedience. The Lord is calling you tonight to repent of cowardice, to repent of weakness. But, Carl, I I feel you must tell your emotions what to feel. As David does in Psalm 62, I love how he preaches to his own emotions when he turns and says, Be still, my soul. Do you know how to grab your emotions by the throat and say, I'm going to listen to the word of God now? A final application. Joshua had need of courage and strength to face waves of enemies in conflict. So do you. You've not been called to a life of ease. You must battle against a three-front army who's coming at you fast. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And against unbelief and compromise. In 1521, Martin Luther was summoned to the city of Worms. When you read it on paper, it looks like the city of Worms, but you know Germans. They don't know how to pronounce things. So he was summoned to the city of Worms for a a trial, a heresy trial, to answer charges by the Roman Catholic Church that he had been teaching two specific doctrines, sola scriptura and justification by faith alone. So he went to vindicate his teaching. As he drew near the city of Worms, uh, a messenger came out of the city gates and told Luther if he came any further, he would not be given a pass of safe conduct. At that moment, a friendly citizen appeared in the woods and warned him, Don't enter the city. Danger is everywhere. Martin Luther looked at the man and said, Even if there are as many devils in worms as there are tiles on the rooftops, I must enter. I fear no man for the Lord is with me. A few years later, remembering that incident, six years later exactly to the day, Luther penned a hymn based on Psalm 46. He wrote, Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness Grim." We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, his lows doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Luther understood what it meant to be strong and courageous. Let's pray together. Our Father, we know from your word that the evil one is waiting to snatch the word away that we just heard so that it will bear no fruit. But we ask now for the reminding work of the Holy Spirit that he would keep bringing the word we've heard back to our remembrance over and over. Just as you commanded Joshua repeatedly to be strong and courageous, we ask that the Holy Spirit would bring these truths to our remembrance often now. Enable us to mortify all weakness, anxiety, cowardice, and fear. We pray in Jesus' name.